Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, here with me in virtual Cyberdelic Space are William F., Max P., who's up in Canada, and Yori S., all of whom are fellow saloners who made donations this past week to help offset some of the expenses here in the salon. And I thank you all very much for helping us to keep the show going. Now, today I'm finally going to get around to doing something that our fellow saloners have been asking about for several years now, and that is to put together a psychedelic reading list. Actually, it uh, was the fact that Terence began this segment of his 1987 workshop by mentioning the titles of several books that he thought were essential for any psychedelic library. In fact, he mentions over a dozen books, and so that you don't have to write them down, I've done it for you in the program notes for this podcast. And additionally, I've also provided links to them on my Amazon store. And uh, I guess that this is a good place to also thank our fellow saloners who have shopped there over the past year. It's uh, not a huge source of revenue. I, uh, I think that the total of last year's commissions came to about $150. But uh, hey, that's uh, half of our monthly expenses here in the salon. So if you happen to be one of those kind souls who shop there, I thank you very much for your contribution to the salon as well. Because all of our commissions from Amazon go directly to paying our hosting bills. As I mentioned in my previous podcast, this workshop was held in 1987. And in today's segment, we learn that, in fact, it was Easter weekend in that year. Now, when he got to where he wanted to talk about the time wave... I got ready to cut that out, because uh, as I've said before, now that the magic of 2012 is over and the time wave is mute, I just didn't want to go through it again. But I always listen to those raps uh, before editing them out, just uh, to be sure that we don't miss something of interest. Well, uh, what interested me in the time wave rap that we'll be hearing shortly is that it is the first time that I can remember him explaining in great detail how that concept actually came into his mind during those legendary days at La Chirera. That said, I did cut out his very lengthy description of the I Ching and the rest of the technical details of his idea. However, I think that the parts that I left in are worth your time listening to because, well, I think it gives us a better look into the mind of McKenna and how he, uh, at least on Easter Day in 1987, believed in the time wave and its 2012 end date. But uh, let me put this talk on and then you can judge for yourself. At each of these weekends, we usually update people on uh, books on the subject that are available one of the things that people don't do enough of when they do psychedelic work is uh, spend time in the library. I mean, there's a great deal of published literature on these things, historical, chemical, so forth and so on, and uh, it's good to be informed. I know that I often I use reference books. I use Schulte's Botany and Chemistry of Hallucinogens, for those aspects, Peter Stafford's uh, Psychedelic Encyclopedia is good for a kind of social history overview. Um, 
Marlene De Rios has a book called Cross-Cultural Perspectives on Hallucinogens. Uh, probably one of the books that I recommend most to people is Michael Harner's anthology, Shamanism and Hallucinogens, where he gathered a bunch of very good articles together there. Hoffer and Osmond's old classic hallucinogens, even though it was last updated in 68, still on the major hallucinogens is uh, the best uh, source. And in addition to those, which I just mentioned but don't have here to show you, I want to show you some of the newer or more interesting stuff in the field. This is a book that has not been widely distributed at all. This fellow might be a candidate for teaching at Esalen, I don't know. Uh, it's the science and romance of selected herbs used in medicine and religious ceremony by Anthony Ando. And Ando has uh, his own institute in San Francisco. He runs a nursery on Taravel. He's, uh, judging by this book, <clears throat> an extremely knowledgeable person with a worldwide uh, education in herbs and a special stress on, uh, on folk usage. So there are, for instance, here's uh, a an Egyptian illustration of Senofer, the royal garden and his sist gardener and his sister Marit. And there's a lot of plant lore in here that you just don't get anywhere else. And... Uh, Another book like that is William M. Bowden's book, Narcotic Plants. Terrible title, but uh, a tremendous amount of information that doesn't seem to appear anywhere else. Uh, Macmillan was the publisher. So he's a Bay Area resource that we certainly were not aware of until very recently, and maybe some of the rest of you were not aware of him either. This is some... This guy should... He's one of us. He should be uh, part of uh, the party. Mm -hmm. Then, uh, in terms of publications, the publications on psychedelics that you may be familiar with, such as High Times and High Frontiers, are sort of addressing this, uh, trying to restart the youth rebellion. Or uh, Anyway, it's, a, it's not a full spectrum or deep look at psychedelics, this magazine, which was previously called Psychozoic Press and has been renamed Psychedelic Monographs and Essays. <laughs> Are you a psychedelic monograph, Eric? An essay. <laughs> oh, an essay. <laughs> uh, it's, can be, it's published out of Florida and uh, it's very, very lively. It has a huge letter section Everybody you know seems to write one letter per issue in. And, uh, for instance, this issue has articles on psychedelics, a woman's rite of passage, earmarks of psychedelic spiritual experiences, also by a woman, psychedelics and lucid dreaming, doorways in the mind, also by a woman, and Tom Reidlinger, who some of you may know from Chicago, an article by him on psychedelic schooling, uh, this the, it's simply printed, but it's uh, it's from the heart. It's scholarly. It's uh, the tone 
I think, is very good. I would actually urge you to support these people by subscribing. We have nothing personally to do with it. It's just that they're uh, on a good trip. And I'll hand this around and you can get the... the uh, I'll hand them all around. And you can get addresses off of them if you want. This is Rupert's new book. Rupert is... Uh, Rupert Sheldrake. It's just begun to be distributed. He is going to make a revolution in thinking about uh, resonance and form, and it has an aspect in it that is very kind to our concern. The psychedelics uh, are much more centrally important to understanding in a morphic resonance theory of nature. So uh, Rupert is just a brilliant writer, even more brilliant than he is a talker, and uh, this is a delicious book to just read 10 or 15 pages at night uh, before you go to bed. This is a reference... Uh, I'll send this one this way. This is a reference book that, in terms of getting a lot of information between the covers of one book with a massive amount of color uh, illustration, uh, this is Sh Richard Evan Schulte's The leading light of ethnobotany. He spent uh, over 15 years in the Amazon and uh, has uh, led hundreds of graduate students into careers in ethnobotany and really uh, has put the field on the map. And his co-author is Albert Hoffman, who invented LSD. In, in terms of one book about psychoactive plants, that is in print and readily available, uh, I would go with this one, I think. Uh, Alfred Vandermark? Vandermark, I guess, did this edition. It was originally done by Macmillan. <coughs> this is Rian Eisler's book, The Chalice and the Blade. It may not immediately appear to have anything to do with psychedelics, but it has to do with... Um, revisioning society by looking at ancient models of how men and women uh, arranged social structure in the past. And like <coughs> Rupert, this is a book with a secret agenda. This book uh, is a tracking horse for a new respectability for psychedelics because when you begin asking the question, why was there a partnership society for so long and why did it give way to a dominator culture? The answer lies, I think, in changing patterns of plant utilization and a changing relationship to the psychedelic experience. This is a, a wonderful book, maybe the most important book of archaeological scholarship in the last ten years or so. Rian lives in... Carmel Valley. She is a local person and a great uh, resource, and I'm sure that you'll be seeing more of her uh, in the Esalen catalog and around. She speaks very well. If you if you have a chance to hear her speak, why uh, I would urge you to do it. Send that this way. This is just to remind you of our little book on cultivating mushrooms. I don't think there, if you have the time and the focus, this is really the way to do it shamanically, to get out of the dealing cycle and the not knowing what you've got cycle. And also, 
as I said earlier, this trains you to punctuality, cleanliness, attention to detail, uh, all of these qualities, which, I, I, in fact, I used to say to people, once you've grown the mushroom, you, are, you know you're ready to take it because it has imbued in you the qualities you need to take it through the act of growing it. Don't be fooled. It isn't easy. And it isn't that the process is difficult. It's that you have bad habits that will get in the way of the process. Habits like leaving your apartment occasionally. and uh, <laughs> You can't do that anymore if you do this. <laughs> And it's, it's definitely much more than a grower's guide. It contains a lot of, uh, as Kat mentioned, a chronology and a lot of discussion about what the mushroom is. It also is the first place to where these images from the African plateau, the Teseli plateau in Algeria, have been reproduced from. And they are strong evidence for the use of mushrooms in Neolithic Africa. This is evidence which Wasson did not include in his books. New evidence. And uh, both of the major, uh, the major uh, rock paintings that argue for this point of view are in here. The next issue of Revision will have a drawing by Cat on the cover and an article by me about mushrooms and the goddess an article it will be a psychedelic issue everything in it will be psychedelic so you might watch for that and then last and just sort of as a fun thing in case you're not aware of this book some people aren't it's called the the Codex Seraphinius and uh, it is written in an unknown language it contains hundreds and hundreds of color drawings, and since it's written in an unknown language, it's impossible to figure out what it's about because the drawings are all of objects which don't exist in this world. So it's, uh, it's great fun. It's stimulation for the imagination. It shows, I think, uh, one person's response to the, uh, to the psychedelic... Uh, experience. And this book was originally published at $75. It's obviously a labor of love. It could not have been conceived of as a money-making proposition. Consequently, now it's being remaindered in most places. You can pick one of these up for 19 bucks, at least at Moe's in Berkeley and probably any other large volume uh, bookstore like that. You can spend hours with this thing. I mean, it's, it's more than you can take in at one uh, go. Well, um, I thought this morning, uh, because we don't have too much time, and I have several people have asked me to talk about our personal visions and some people specifically the time wave and all that, and I'll sort of work my way into it. I did want to take account of the fact that today is Easter. There are workshops who would have fallen upon the coincidence of Easter with themselves as an excuse for an orgy of oval ceremonialism. But uh, somehow it slipped past here. But I, I will... Uh, 
Well, it's an excellent excuse for me to talk about what seems to me one of the most mysterious of all passages in the New Testament. And I'm not a New Testament scholar, but uh, I've puzzled over this passage for years and years, and I think it relates to what we're doing. I'm not sure. I believe it's in Matthew when the women come to the tomb on Easter morning looking for Christ. Now, I think the two, the two Anne's and Margaret, it's Mary Magdalene comes first, and she's alone, I believe. And Christ is there. She sees him. She, it is the two Margaret's who come later. And, uh, and she starts toward Christ because she thought he was dead, and she sees him standing by the tomb. She starts toward him, and he stops her. And he says, touch me not, for I am not yet completely of the nature of the Father. And I've always thought that this was just a fascinating passage because uh, what is being said here? What's going on here? He se- Christ seems to be indicating that though he is now alive, he has resurrected, he has come through the crucifixion, nevertheless, in some sense, he is not yet completely transubstantiate. And it suggests uh, a process, a, a physical change in the body that requires time to complete itself. So, This morning I thought I would talk a little bit about time and uh, insights into it that have come to me out out of psychedelics. What I always hoped for out of the psychedelic voyaging was to bring back something. I always felt and still feel that that is the attitude with which you should go into these things, to bring something back. I mean, it could be something a personal insight into a personal dilemma or a more generalized idea because I really think that the, uh, that the psychedelic realm is the realm of ideas and that ideas which change the world come first from, uh, from that place. And I'm always a little reluctant to get into this because when I speak about my own ideas, I feel much more um, how much I'm asking from you as an audience. In other words, it's like an ego trip because it's my ideas and why spend an hour on my idea instead of talking about all these uh, facts, careers, and uh, established uh, concerns. But you asked for it. So, uh, in, the, in 1971, when we went to the Amazon to look into DMT and all of these things, we really had no clear conception of what we were after. We just knew that we wanted to get more time in that dimension, more hands-on experience. Well, if any of you have read The Invisible Landscape, you know that my brother conceived of a certain kind of uh, 
project where he thought that the psychedelic molecules could actually be bonded in to the physical body, into the DNA, using sound, and that they could be made briefly superconducting and it's interesting that that was a word that no one knew what it meant back then. He predicted room temperature superconductors uh, in 1971 at La Chirera. Well, now room temperature superconductors are a huge concern of a vast part of the scientific research establishment. A whole new technology is promised by this stuff. Uh, he had this notion that you could bond psychedelic molecules into the DNA and that then the trip would sustain itself indefinitely and could be analyzed as a kind of uh, waveform signature of the totality of the organism. In other words, he felt that the ordinary psychedelic trip is a fleeting photograph, an, almost an x-ray, you could say, that uh, comes into the mind when the psychedelic molecules occupy these bond sites and then flash to the higher cortical processing area of the brain, a kind of gestalt of the state of the organism. And he felt that if you could stabilize and permanentize this, that uh, it would be worth doing. I mean, it wasn't clear whether he thought he would become a Taoist sage or turn into a flying saucer or what it was. I mean, it was a shifting image of totality that he was projecting. Well, I was very skeptical of this. And... Uh, because it seems unreasonable, and basically I'm a reasonable person. But on the other hand, going to the center of the Amazon basin had been our purpose, and here we were, and now somebody seemed to be coming up with something very interesting. So we let the experiment run, since it seemed to me it would either work as he said it would work, or it would fail utterly. Because what was proposed was that you saturate your body with psychedelic molecules and then sing in a certain range and in a certain way. And I thought either nothing will happen, 99 chances out of 100, or since he's so impassionately convinced something will happen, the thing he's convinced will happen will happen. So we performed this experiment, and if you've listened to True Hallucinations, you know what a riot it was and what chaos it set off. And I won't really review that, except for those who, haven't, who didn't read True Hallucinations. What he said would happen didn't happen. But on the other hand, my expectation that nothing would happen was completely frustrated. And instead, he seemed to initiate what at first brush looked like a psychotic break. He became unaware of the people around him. He would talk right through other people's talking as though he couldn't hear them. He began to make less and less sense. He lost motor control. And, uh, and, every, and everyone assumed that he was uh, slipping into some kind of psychosis. What complicated this 
was I, who had been cast in the role of the skeptic and the witness, had noticed that the moment he had forged the joint, as he called it, something began to happen for me, something very unusual. What it was, was the teaching voice, familiar from psilocybin experiences, but with none of the ambiguity and difficulty of connection that I had associated with the psilocybin experiences. Instead, it just came on and appeared to be locked in place. And he was saying, that's it. We've succeeded. Uh, this is what it is. And all, all the hallucinations... I wasn't even on mushrooms. He had taken ayahuasca. But there were no hallucinations. There was no feeling of being stimulated or depressed. There was nothing but this voice. And it was talking at such a speed that I would walk these jungle trails like this. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes. I see. Yes. Yes. And it was just, you know, at that speed. Not for minutes, but for months. You know. And... And what it was concerned to convey is what I now call the time wave. And, and I will attempt, without blackboards or mathematics or being boring, I hope, to explain what this is. And that's a formidable problem because this is an idea as rigid as the kind of ideas that run subway trains and send submarines back to their bases. I mean, it's a, it's a formal, tight idea. But the way it was taught to me was in a steady process of self-amplifying parables or teachings, you could almost say. So how it began was it said to me, have you noticed that every day is like every other day. Somewhat. I said, yes, I've noticed that. And have you noticed that every uh, week is more or less like every other week? Yes. Well, did you know that, and this is a typical mushroom construction, this, did you know? I'll bet you did know. And then the whammy. So, did you know, I'll bet you did know, that uh, every day has a relationship to four other days. And they are not the four days preceding it. They are scattered back through time. One of them may be six months in the past. One of them may be thousands of years in the past. But each day is actually an interference pattern caused by the uh, resonant, uh, the coming together of the resonances of other times. And so I, uh, it never occurred to me, I mean, it's a weird idea, it never occurred to me <laughs> that that was uh, a possibility. And so then it said, uh, go get your I Ching. And I went and got my I Ching, and it said, we're going to look at the first order of difference. 
And I said, what's the first order of difference? He said, oh, you don't know what the first order of difference is. The first order of difference is how many lines change as you go from one hexagram to another. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the I Ching, but I assume most somewhat, right? Okay, the I Ching is composed of structures which have six levels called hexagrams. They are either broken or unbroken lines. The first one, called the creative, is all solid lines. The second one, called the receptive, is all broken lines. Who can tell me the first order of difference between the first and second hexagram? Here's a clue. It's the number of lines that break. No fair. <laughs> Six. I don't know why you're not leaping forward with it. I, it makes me wonder how far we can go. <laughs> Six. Anyway, to try and shorten this story, what this teaching voice was concerned with was structure in the I Ching, previously hidden structure. So I, it said... Uh, we can't go forward with this conversation until you get some graph paper because this is going to be not only conversation, this is going to be diagram. So I got graph paper and it said, draw the hexagrams in a descending line in the King Wen sequence and then make a graph of the first order of difference, the number of lines that change as you go from hexagram to hexagram. I did this and I got a wavy line, obviously. You can tell that uh, the values will lie between 1 and 6. In some cases, 6 will change. In some cases, only 1. Never none, because each hexagram is different. I was puzzled as to why an Amazonian mushroom wanted to talk about the archaeology of ancient China. And so what that this resonance calendar existed. But then it said, no, no, you don't understand. We have just, we are now in the atrium of what it is I want to reveal to you. I want you to go back and look at the first order of difference wave, and I want you to understand that, and I already knew this, but I hadn't done much with it, that the reason the I Ching is based on 64 is because 64 are the number of codons that DNA runs on. The I Ching is not an arbitrary construction. It is something that comes out of a deep, formal inspection of what the human organism is. The human organism is a molecular machine that runs on an iterative program of 64. And our, the proteins which compose our bodies are like this, so forth and so on. And then I said, well, that I understand about DNA, I understand how the I Ching mirrors that, but I don't understand how then it's also a calendar. And the voice said, well, don't you see? Perception can be only organized out of the matter which composes it. Time appears to you in your psychological perception of it in the way that it does because time is a property of matter that is being amplified by biology into the theater of awareness. 
So in other words, and this is now me speaking, not it, my interpretation of what it was saying was life is a phenomenon of quantum mechanical amplification. And because we are organized on the blueprint of this quantum mechanical pattern that is very deep at the submolecular level of matter, then all our institutions, languages, religions, love affairs, everything has this pattern as the base embedded in it, almost like these fractals which give rise to endless amounts of a certain kind of beauty. But if you were to see the equation which generates the fractal, you know, it has six terms. It can be written uh, in 15 seconds. So then there was there were years passed and a great leap had to be made because uh, I was like non-functional because I worked with this wave I felt I had the signature of the universe that a great gift of truth had been given to me but when I tried to tell people they just backed to the wall and said you know get help (laughs) now now get help and here's where we separate the men from the boys, the women from the girls, and the wheat from the chaff. (laughs) The conclusion that I reached uh, was that this universal wave, which has been operating for several billion years, will reach its maximum concrescent uh, state of enfoldment uh, at dawn on the 22nd of December, 2012 A.D., This immediately puts me in the nut category. (laughs) This is what's called messianic delusion, millenarian uh, uh, grandeur, so forth and so on. Nevertheless, it's a persistent intuition of most religious ontologies, perhaps not the Buddhist, but the Hindus, the Jews, the Muslims, the Christians, all appoint an end to their world. And... uh, I really, I'm a little shy about this because, I, because it's so personally mine. Nobody has ever made a contribution to this idea that was substantial. I just, it seems to be mine alone and welcome to it. And yet, I want you and historians and paleontologists and primatologists and people who are experts on time in different uh, sizes, to look at this wave. It's working, ladies and gentlemen. It does, in fact, describe the ebb and flow of this thing called novelty. Now, when I question the mushroom about this, it it almost makes it trivial. For it, it's an, of course. You, of course, you are made of DNA. DNA is made out of matter. Matter is has to have time as a precondition of its existence. The signature of time embedded in the atomic structure is amplified to the molecular structure, then is amplified to the organismic structure, and that's called a human life well-lived. Then it's amplified to the societal structure, that's called the birth, growth, and senescence of empire. And then it's magnified to the global structure 
and that's called the coming of the hyperspatial object at the end of time. It's also a theory of resonance. It's saying that large scales of time have their themes and concerns condensed and revivified in the smaller components. Now, this is somewhat hard to understand, but rich enough to pursue. It's this idea. And now I'm going to use James Joyce's classic example. Joyce wrote a book called Ulysses. Ulysses is a book about a man who rises in, on a morning, a bright morning day in June in 1905 or 6. He wants to fry some kidneys for breakfast. So he gets his wallet and heads out into Dublin to score some kidneys to bring back. Mm-hmm. And he has all these adventures. But Joyce understood that this man on this day was also Ulysses with his brave component of man journeying to the end of the Mediterranean, laying siege to Troy for nine years, winning the Trojan War, returning to their homelands. In other words, he understood that in each of us we are acting out larger and larger scales of time that give color and precision and depth and interest to our being. So, if you find yourself on a Saturday night in a place in San Francisco called Hadrian's Hamburger Joint, it has something to do with the Emperor Hadrian and his conquest of Britain and his effort to hold back the barbarians. Life, carefully examined, is actually a form of allegorical literature of it with a very tight constructural grid laid over it. Um, this is a rich idea, and as I say, I'll be giving a five-day workshop on this only because this is the only psychedelic idea I've ever brought back other than you know, idiotic realizations such as everyone's little finger precisely fits their nostril. <laughs> You know, there's no market for that. But this, this would actually create a revisioning of time. And had we more time this morning, I would tell you how it could be turned into a calendar of the goddess, how by living with a solar year that always puts Christmas on the same, with the same slant of sunshine coming in, that we have locked ourselves into a paternalistic, uh, masculine-dominated structure. What the universe is, is flux. Nothing lasts, nothing abides, everything moves on. Women know this, men don't, and we're living under a solar masculine calendar. The reason our ideas and by our ideas, I'm now speaking of the entirety of the New Age and all of this stuff, the reason our ideas meet resistance is because the framing around the entire discussion of the spirit and feminism and transforming, the frame is always the masculine solar time frame. As long as we operate under that calendar we will have a very difficult time advancing our ideas. This is The Chinese understood this. This was why when great reforming emp- emperors arose, the first thing they did was change the calendar. 
If you want food for thought, look at hexagram 49. It's revolution. You open it up expecting uh, sage political advice. It talks only about the calendar. And it talks about the magician as a calendar maker. In fact, it says, the magician is a calendar maker. So, I think that uh, what this teaching that came out of this experience in the Amazon was all about was, it was a totality symbol. Dennis had thought that the flying saucer would emerge out of his body as a spinning violet disk of translinguistic matter that would become showerhead pizza or Mercedes, depending on what you needed at the moment. He thought it would become matter in the act of appropriate activity. Instead, what emerged was a totality symbol. And Jung talks about how in the individuation process you always hope that the patient or the client will generate a totality symbol. But he usually means a kind of individual and wavering totality symbol like a mandala or a, 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 a cohesive structure or something. I think we got and I try to say this without hubris because I felt like I was nothing more than the vessel into which this thing was being poured, what we got was the totality symbol in a complete version, not certainly not a total version, because I don't think the human mind can encompass the total version, but we got a skeletal blueprint of what totality is in the world. What it is, is knowing how things happen, knowing that all processes, the firing of a nerve, the culmination of a love affair, the fall of an empire, has a, a pattern. And if you know the pattern, you will be at ease with any process in all or any of its stages. Because you'll just say, ah, oh, this is the time of resistance. It will soon be followed by the time of forward motion. That will be followed by the time of reinfoldment. And what this does is it eliminates anxiety, ultimately. That's the bottom line. Our anxiety about death and our anxiety about the future and our relationships and money and all this stuff can be boiled down to anxiety about the unknowable aspects of the future. If we could assimilate a model like this, we would be Taoists. The future holds no terrors for a person who knows how process inevitably unfolds. They are always right and with it in each moment. So, I, I think that we've always talked about the I Ching, Taoism, all this sort of thing as the, sort of the culmination of mysticism. But to make it a living faith in our own lives, there should be nothing mystical about it. And I maintain to you, there is nothing mystical about it. It's simply that we are at a, such a primitive stage of culture that we haven't yet understand, understood what time is. A hundred years ago, we were at such a primitive stage of culture that we didn't understand what time was. Einstein had to come along and say, you know, time is not an abstraction necessary to have a place to put objects that you want to examine. Time itself 
is an object. It is curved in the vicinity of massive gravitational fields. It has a topology. It has a surface. I think what we need to understand out of this idea, ultimately what the psychedelic experience is teaching, ultimately what Taoism is trying to say, is that time is a topological manifold. It is a surface. Events flow across it like water over land. And like water flowing over land, when the land is flat, the water becomes reflective and moves slowly. When the landscape becomes disrupted, the water moves faster and chaotic attractors appear and new kinds of activity emerge. And out of that new activity then comes the new states that define the future. Well, uh, I'm going to stop there. I haven't shown you a graph or written a number or drawn a hexagram, and I think that's remarkable. <laughs> this is the feeling tone. This is the good stuff that you get if you go through those graphs, numbers, and time on at the computer. But this is the totality symbol that I was able to get out of living a psychedelic life. And I believe that there are as many of these kinds of totality symbols as there are people willing to trip. And each one of them is different. You know, we create them for each other. They complete our lives. They assuage anxiety. And they give us a tremendous appetite then for the adventure of being rather than the ordeal of being. And they arise out of using psychedelics to amplify and inspect the quantum mechanical and subconscious and superconscious portions of the human mind. This is why the psychedelic experience and psychedelics are so important. It's because they are tools for understanding and revisioning the reality in which we all live. The personal growth is a wonderful thing and will naturally follow along. But it's more important than that. It's a way to make a new world that is Taoistic, feminine, free of anxiety, and in great anticipation of further stages of completion lying into the future. That's, uh, that's where the mystery, the transcendental object, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is waiting. And I think that's the job of each of us, to show our best toys and our best tricks that lift us and our friends to higher and higher levels. And there is no end to this bootstrapping process. The, the future of the human mind and body and the future of humans together is uh, endlessly bright. Keep the faith, recognize each other, and uh, maybe I should close with a little line from Gary Snyder if I can remember it. He said, uh, Learn the flowers travel light, stay together. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Learn the flowers, travel light, and stay together. 
that's as good advice as I can remember ever hearing. Learn the flowers, travel light, and stay together. I really like that. So, uh, how many of those books that Terrence mentioned just now do you have in your own library? The one book he mentioned that really intrigues me is the Codex Serafinianus by Luigi Serafini. Unless I miss my guess, that first edition that Terrence paid $75 for is now selling for over $5,000. But uh, the good news is that there's a new hardcover reprint due out in October of 2013. And while the publisher's price is $125, Amazon is pre-selling it for $82, and I think that's in hardback. However, uh, that still seems a, a bit steep for a book written in a language that no one can understand and presents drawings of things that can't exist in our universe. <laughs> However, my guess is that uh, one or more of our fellow saloners are going to be picking up a copy. It's a little too pricey for me, and so I hope that uh, one day somebody will post a better description of it in the comments section of the program notes for today's podcast. Now, I was going to say a few words about how I now see the time wave theory without its 2012 end date as uh, possibly yet giving us some insights into this thing we so casually call time. But the truth is that I'm still trying to formulate my thoughts in a way that, well, that makes some sense to somebody other than myself. And so I'm going to leave those thoughts for another day. Hopefully uh, you and some of our other fellow saloners will add your thoughts to the program notes today and further our thinking along this track. What I am going to do right now is to add a few more book titles to the ones that Terrence just mentioned. Considering the fact that over a quarter of a century has passed since Terrence gave this workshop, my guess is that he would now want to add a few more titles to this list himself. So I picked out a few books in my own library that have been of great use to me, and I'm going to read those titles now. But don't worry about writing this all down, because if you go to www.psychedelicsalon.us, well, that'll take you to our program notes blog, where you can find a listing of all the books mentioned in this podcast, along with links that will conveniently take you to my own Amazon bookstore. <laughs> so, uh, here are a few more books that you may want to add to your own library, uh, in the event that they aren't already there. First one is by Timothy Leary, and it's The uh, Psychedelic Experience, a manual based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Then there's uh, Pablo Amaringo and Luis uh, Luna, Luis Eduardo Luna, I believe, uh, his coffee table book called Ayahuasca Visions, the religious iconography of a Peruvian shaman. Be Here Now by Ram Das. Entheogens and the Future of Religion, that was uh, edited by our friend Robert Forte. Then uh, two books by Dr. Charles Grobe, uh, Hallucinogens, a reader, and Higher Wisdom, Eminent Elders Explore the Continuing Impact of Psychedelics. Uh, also, of course, if you don't already have this, you really, really ought to add it, and it's LSD, My Problem Child, Reflections on Sacred Drugs, Mysticism, and Science by Dr. Albert Hoffman. A book I mentioned a couple weeks ago is uh, Nina Grabois' uh, autobiography, One Foot in the Future. Then there's uh, Persephone's Quest, In Theogens and the Origins of Religion by R. Gordon Wasson, Stella Cromish, and Dr. Carl Ruck, and Jonathan Ott. And then from Park Street Press is Sisters of the Extreme, 
Women Writing on the Drug Experience. And that's a very valuable book. You really ought to pick it up. Another book that's well worth reading is The Cosmic Serpent, DNA and the Origins of Knowledge by Jeremy Narby. And, of course, The Doors of Perception and Heaven and Hell by Aldous Huxley. And then Christian Rasch, uh, with some help from Dr. Albert Hoffman, has prepared the Encyclopedia of Psychoactive Plants, Ethnopharmacology and its Applications. And finally, one that really shouldn't be missed is Paul Devereaux's brilliant book, The Long Trip, A Prehistory of Psychedelia. And while I realize that I've left out a lot of books that you probably think should be included in this list, I hope that you'll go to our program notes and add your selections in the comments for this podcast. Uh, This podcast being number 366, by the way. And in closing, I'd like to answer a question that I received from uh, fellow saloner Nicholas. And I let him know that I'd be answering his question here since, like almost everybody else I know, he's using Gmail. And I don't like sending information to Gmail accounts so that uh, Google can cross-index my thoughts to the rest of the data that it's keeping about me. Uh, Interestingly, (laughs) Nicholas uh, also has another email address, and uh, now we're in direct communication. So even though I've answered this for him, I thought the question might be interesting to you as well. Uh, My answer is kind of weaselly, though. His question is, how do you, personally, remain hopeful and positive living in this 21st century, living in this world we have helped to create? And uh, as I say, my kind of weaselly answer is... Well, I try to focus as much of my attention as possible on things that actually affect my life directly, like uh, spending time with my family and uh, reading. Uh, These days, of course, uh, when I watch and read the news, I think of it as a fictional soap opera, sort of like the uh, movie The Truman Show. Earlier in my life, I was uh, very active politically, but after spending quite a few years and a lot of money on activism, uh, nothing had changed. Uh, We had absolutely no effect on our issue, which at the time was the prisoner of war issue from the Vietnam War. So I'm now focused on changing the culture, one mind at a time. And I truly believe that once the culture changes, well, our politics will then follow. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.